welcome to Melia's What Does Good Look Like? The podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. If you want to learn more about us, Melio, or find links to our previous podcast episodes, visit meliohealth.co.uk. What Does Good Look Like? is a podcast about health and how to stay healthy for the whole of life. We give you a front seat to our conversations with experts who spend their lives solving real problems related to health and longevity, helping you understand what you can do to live a longer, healthier and better life. We decided to call this podcast What Does Good Look Like? because too often generic advice is given about health and lifestyle without really understanding from those who work in the field what good really looks like. This year we've had several conversations about COVID-19, a disease that can affect anyone, but where an older biological age is without doubt one of the strongest risk factors for becoming severely ill. The importance of COVID testing keeps appearing as one of the most important strategies we have to control the pandemic, yet it seems difficult to implement well at scale. The type of tests used to tell if you've had the disease in the past, the so-called serology or antibody tests, in particular had a bit of a rough start, especially the finger prick antibody tests that were temporarily banned in the UK back in May due to concerns around their accuracy. But what's the status of these tests now? Are all antibody tests on the market equally good? Are they at all reliable and Perhaps even more importantly, are they useful? What would you say to a member of the general public looking at buying a test? What should they be thinking of and what should they look out for? I'll just take myself, for example. If I were to have a test done on myself, I would want to make sure that I selected the test that detected the right antibodies. Um, so I would want to use a receptor binding domain based assay. I would want to make sure that I get both a qualitative and a quantitative result. Um, the qualitative result tells me that I have the antibodies and the quantitative result tells me how much of those antibodies I have or the relative potency of my individual immune response to the virus. Those are the key things. And I would want a fast result. You know, once I, once I give my blood, I'd, I'd want to know within a day whether or not um, I have antibodies against the virus. Because if I do have antibodies against the virus, chances are that I will not become reinfected. And if I become reinfected, it will not progress to serious disease. So that just gives me a peace of mind that yes, I did have either the vaccine and now I'm seropetent or I did have the virus and I didn't even know it because there's a lot of asymptomatic disease out there. Do I have the right antibodies that are going to protect me from future infection? So does that mean that having antibodies against COVID make you immune? Well, it depends. In this episode, we meet Jim Freeman, who's worked in assay development for over 35 years and who's led the development of Siemens Healthineer's top performing COVID antibody test. As he'll explain, the question of immunity depends on what you mean by immunity, but also the type of antibody test you take. Some antibody tests may be able to tell you if you've had the disease in the past, but not if you have the type of antibodies that can neutralize the virus if you're exposed to it again, or if you have enough of them. But there are also tests on the market that can do all of those things. We'll also discuss how antibody testing can be used to evaluate the response to vaccine, and how the ongoing vaccine trials help us understand the links between antibodies and immunity. There are a few technical terms used, but don't worry, 
Will's daughter Isabel, whom you met in the cancer episode in season 2, will help us explain. Let's start with the basics. Antibodies are part of the body's immune response infection. If you have antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus in your blood, we say that you are antibody positive, and it means that you've had COVID at some point in the past. Serology is the study of antibodies in blood serum. Seroprevalence is the percentage of people in a population who have antibodies against a particular virus or bacterium, and can be used to learn more about how many people have been infected and how quickly a disease spreads. Thanks, Izzy. Now over to our conversation with Jim. We've actually had several conversations with health experts this year where the importance of testing keeps emerging as one of the key strategies really in, in dealing with the COVID pandemic. And uh, COVID testing has been a hot topic in the media as well. So we figured it would be good to speak to a testing expert uh, to help us answer some of the questions that we know a lot of people are, are asking. So welcome, Jim. We're very happy to have you as a guest today. And we usually start by asking our guests to present themselves, describe their job in lay terms and tell us a little bit about what got them into this area in the first place. Sure. Um, my name is Jim Freeman and thank you very much for having me today. I am the Vice President of Immunoassay Development at Siemens Health and Ears based in Terrytown, New York. My responsibility is for all immunoassay testing on our laboratory diagnostic platforms. Um, the platforms include the Edvia Centaur and the Atelica Solution. And how, how did you get into to testing or assay development? Um, I've been in assay development for over 35 years. I started my career in California at a small company in 1984. And I have been in assay development. I've been developing assays, um, both point-of-care type assays, as well as assays that run on large, um, large high-volume instrumentation ever since then. So you're the right person to talk to if you want to learn more about testing then. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. When it comes to testing, and not just COVID testing specifically, but also I think medical testing in general, the accuracy of a test is, of course, extremely important because if you can't trust the results, then what's the point, right? And at Siemens Healthineers, you've managed to develop a highly accurate COVID-19 antibody test, which actually came out as the best-in-class test in a head-to-head -head comparison study by the Public Health England earlier this year. So would you perhaps mind explaining to us a little bit what goes into actually developing a test like this? Sure. So I'll speak specifically regarding the coronavirus serology assays uh, that we've developed. Yeah. And, and, and you are right. Accuracy is key. The assay sensitivity as well as the assay specificity needs to be designed to be of a very high, um, high value. You've probably heard the word sensitivity and specificity before. They're important because they describe how accurate a test is. The higher they are, the better. No test is 100% accurate at all times, but you want to use a test where the accuracy is as high as possible. Otherwise, you may not be able to trust the results you get. The accuracy of a test, in combination with the prevalence, which means how common a condition is, is used to calculate the predictive value of the test. 
the predictive value tells you how reliable the results are. The positive predictive value of an antibody test is the probability that a positive antibody test's result is correct, that you truly have antibodies against the virus. When the prevalence of a disease changes, the positive predictive value will change too, even though the sensitivity and specificity are the same. So, for example, the assay sensitivity is the ability of the test to detect a positive patient. And the specificity of a test is to be able to correctly identify a patient as negative. So if I am testing a population of samples where the seroprevalence of disease is low, in other words, there's only 5% of the people that I'm testing are actually positive, the specificity of my test has to be greater than 99.9%. Because if it's not, my positive predicted value will only be about 50%. So if my test is only 95% specific and my seroprevalence is 5% of the population, my ability to detect a positive patient sample is no better than a flip of a coin. It's only 50%. So the, the specificity of the test has to be exquisite. And, and that's what we've been able to do at Siemens with our tests on our automated platforms. The specificity of our tests is greater than 99.9%. So it's the positive predicted value of a test is my ability to detect a positive patient sample. And if I have very low seroprevalence of the disease in the population, if my specificity of my test is not very high, then my positive predicted value will be very low. And that's what we've seen with many of these lateral flow point of care device tests that flooded the markets early in this pandemic. The specificity of those tests was only about 90 to 95 percent which means that the positive predicted value, the ability of that test to detect a positive result was 50% or lower. And that is just not the level of accuracy that we need, especially when we're you know, addressing a pandemic like SARS-CoV-2. So these lateral flow devices that flooded the market, um, they did not have the accuracy that, that was needed, especially during that phase of the pandemic when the seroprevalence was still quite low. Yeah, and those, those lateral flow tests, those are the ones with a device where you can get a very quick result just at the point of care. Basically, you wait 10 minutes or so and then you can get a result. That's absolutely right. They're based upon finger stick blood being sampled from the individual and then 10 or 15 minutes later, you know, you get the result. But people really need to understand that if it's of poor quality, you know, you may have a false sense of security based upon the results of those tests. I mean, even today, um, we're only seeing seroprevalences of 20 to 25% in populations. So again, the specificity of these tests needs to be very high yeah. in order to um, have a, you know, a good positive predictive value for a test. And that actually has a big impact to a lay person, 93% versus 99% may not sound like a huge difference, but actually the difference is enormous. Oh, it's, it's absolutely enormous. So the difference between a 93 and a 99% is 
having my ability to detect a positive test to be like 40% versus 96%. Yeah. That's where you see the difference. So why, why don't we have hundred percent accurate, accurate tests then? What's, what's the tricky bit? Well, that's a good question. So when we develop an assay for SARS-CoV-2, for example, we understood very early that the assay does have to have exquisite specificity. You know, our ability to detect a negative sample as negative. But we also needed to understand that the sensitivity of the test needed to be very high as well. Our ability to detect a positive patient sample. So what we're testing for with these tests is we're testing for the human antibodies that are being generated against SARS-CoV-2. And it's called the seroconversion of an individual, or that individual converts from no antibodies against the virus to high levels. That's called the, ser the seroconversion process of that individual. Now, when we're designing these tests, we test thousands of patient samples that were collected prior to the pandemic, and we optimize the assay for specificity and sensitivity. So we're looking at additives that we have to add to the formulations that will block nonspecific binding, for example, um, that would generate false positive results. So again, we test thousands of patient samples from groups that we know did not have the disease, and we look for positive results. And so, um, you know, we put many different types of additives and blockers into these formulations to block the nonspecific binding that you would expect to see with a negative patient sample. So the assay has been optimized, again, to be, as you said earlier, best in class with regards to assay specificity. Now, to answer your question about why can't we get 100% specificity, there are individuals that just have antibodies that will bind certain aspects of a test. We do the best we can, we strive for, for perfection, but we also have to realize that in order to get to perfection, that might take us two or three years to develop a test. And those false positives, like for instance, making sure, because there are other coronaviruses out there, right? And you, just because someone had a different coronavirus, you don't want them to turn out as being false positive. Is that also part of the, that kind of getting rid of that cross reaction, so to say? Yeah, that's a great question. So, there are four main coronaviruses that cause the common cold that are out there. And of course, we had SARS-CoV-1 as well. And MERS is another coronavirus that, that also does uh, demonstrate some level of cross-reactivity to SARS-CoV-2. Now, our assay was specifically designed to contain the receptor binding domain protein from SARS-CoV-2 and only SARS-CoV-2. So we do not have cross-reactivity to the other four main circulating coronaviruses. We have tested that. We also don't have cross-reactivity to SARS-1 or MERS as well, because we have, we have tested serum from those patients as well. You mentioned the receptor binding domain, and um, I think some people may have heard the term neutralizing antibodies. And this is something where it may differ between different antibody tests on the market as well. Would you like to elaborate a bit on that? Yes, absolutely. It's a very, very important point. There are approximately five viral proteins on or in SARS-CoV-2 that individuals will develop antibodies against. 
So there are structural proteins of the virus. For example, the nucleocapsid protein. This protein wraps itself around RNA to protect the RNA of the virus. Um, so people will uh, produce antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein. It is uh, not on the surface of, of the virus. It's internal to the virus. And then there is the spike protein. Uh, the spike protein, as, as um, many of you I'm sure have seen, it's these little crown type structures that are on the surface of the virus. Um, this protein is made up of, of two proteins, the S1 protein and the S2 protein. And those two proteins form this little spike that's on the surface of SARS-CoV-2. There is one very specific protein domain of the S1 protein that binds to the ACE2 receptor on human cells. This is the point of attachment that the virus has to the human cell that allows the virus to uh, extract its RNA into the cell. Now, the S2 protein, the second protein that makes up the spike protein, is responsible for allowing the infusion of the viral RNA into the human cell. Then there are other proteins. Uh, there's the envelope protein and other matrix-type proteins of the virus that are in uh, less total concentration of the viral proteins. So, so now we need to talk about uh, neutralizing antibodies. Um, so as I said, uh, the, all, all of these proteins of the virus, humans will, will, will generate, or animals in general, will generate antibodies against. Now, it's very important to understand which of those antibodies actually disarm the virus or neutralize the virus or inhibit the virus from invading human cells. So it's been demonstrated in the um, literature as well as we have data at Siemens as well that demonstrate that antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein only bind the nucleocapsid protein. They do not neutralize the virus to any degree. So antibodies against the nucleocapsid protein do not inhibit the virus from infecting human cells. The antibodies against the receptor binding domain are responsible for neutralizing the virus's ability to invade human cells. There are uh, articles out there, there are published reports of approximately 90% of the antibodies that neutralize SARS-CoV-2 are directed against the receptor binding domain. So it's very important that if we're looking at whether or not an individual has immunocompetence um, or is generating antibodies that are required to neutralize the virus, it's very important that we use a serology test that measures human antibody against the proper protein. And that protein is the receptor binding domain. Now, on top of what I've just said, the vaccine manufacturers, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, Moderna, the other vaccine manufacturers as well, are using the spike protein, or specifically the receptor binding domain, as their primary protein target to vaccinate individuals to produce human antibodies against the receptor binding domain, giving people immunocompetence um, and essentially immunity to the virus. So basically what you're saying is, you could test for antibodies against various types of viral proteins if all you wanted to do was to see if someone 
has antibodies against it to see if they've had the infection in the past. But if you want to test if someone is has the right type of antibodies to sort of help protect against future infection and to, to see whether, for instance, a vaccination has been able to be effective and, and give you that antibody response that will actually give you some level of protection, it has to be against those neutralizing antibodies that you you design the assay, so to say, or you use a type of assay that checks for those antibodies. Yes, yes, absolutely. So there are many different types of serology assays currently on the market. There's the point of care, lateral flow devices that we've just talked about a few minutes ago. There are also antibodies or tests that only measure nucleocapsid antibodies. There are tests that measure only receptor binding domain antibodies, such as the Siemens test. There are assays that detect full spike antibodies. So these tests will detect both neutralizing and non-neutralizing non assay um, antibodies. So, you know, you really have to understand the test that you're using, what it's detecting and what it means, right? Because not all serology tests are the same. And do you think, is that what, so I'm gonna ask you a controversial question now, but I know that there have been lots of discussions about, so if you test positive for COVID uh, antibodies, does that mean that you're protected against future disease? And no one's kind of wanted to, to promise that, but on the other hand, you evaluate, like you say, the, the vaccines based on their ability to generate this antibody response. So do you think part of that conversation is down to which type of antibodies you're, the, the answer depends on which type of antibodies you actually test for? Yes, I mean, it's a, you're right, it's a very controversial question, um, but let me try to answer it in a non-controversial way. Um, we know that through vaccine studies, that are currently ongoing. And once we get these vaccines to market and we do phase four trials, once the vaccine gets to market, there will be a point where we will say individuals are immune to the virus. Um, now, this virus really, it's, 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 it's a virus, right? So the other viral infections, we measure antibodies against the virus and determine that people are immune to that virus. For example, rubella, right? Rubella is a childhood disease. We get vaccinated against rubella. We measure rubella antibodies and we deem individuals to be immune to further rubella or subsequent rubella infection if we detect those antibodies. This virus is no different. What we don't have is we don't have clear evidence that specific antibodies against the S1RBD do render an individual immunocompetent or immune to further infection. We will get there through these, vac uh, through these vaccine studies that have been done. Rubella was a virus that was studied for years before we were able to really determine antibody levels and immunity. You know, we, we are one year into this pandemic, actually less than one year into this pandemic. And we've learned so much about this virus, but there is still so much to learn about this virus and learn about what immunity means, what antibody levels, the specific antibodies that are required to demonstrate immunity. These vaccine trials that are ongoing currently, the phase four trials, once the vaccines do uh, roll out into the population, 
will demonstrate the efficacy of the vaccine. And once we start measuring antibodies, we will then confer, we will be able to confer that a certain level of antibody that is measured against the receptor binding domain confers that individual as being immune. We will get there. We're not there yet, but I'm very convinced that we will get there once we have more data. You talk about antibody levels. I think that's another thing, I guess, that's different between different antibody assays. So a lot of the assays out there, they will just tell you if you're positive or negative. But there are also assays that can tell you various levels of antibodies, right? Yes, absolutely. So the again, going back to the point of care tests or these lateral flow devices that use a finger stick, these are just qualitative tests, meaning that that it's a yes, no answer. You, you do have antibodies or you don't have antibodies. That's not good enough. Um, what we really need to understand is the level of antibody that the individual has because just having antibody may not confer immunity. It's how much antibody is being produced by the individual against the specific protein target of the virus that confers immunity. So it's very important that we use these semi-quantitative or quantitative assays that actually give a numeric output, right? A test can give you qualitative or quantitative results. A qualitative antibody result will tell you if you're positive or negative. A quantitative test will give you the quantities, the amount of antibodies in your blood, so that you know how much of them you have. So the level of antibody that's being measured is also important to understand, especially when we're talking about immunocompetence, because certain levels of antibody, you won't be immunocompetent to the virus. But the, So there will be a threshold that will be necessary uh, to be higher than in order to be uh, in order to demonstrate immunity uh, to the infection so do you think now with the vaccine starting to roll out that um, these quantitative assays are the ones where you also get the levels are gonna become much more common yes because it gives you much more information right it gives you information of what what antibody um, is being developed um, the potency of that antibody. Um, so yes, these laboratory developed assays that, that have high specificity, high sensitivity, being able to give a semi-quantitative result very quickly on automated platforms. Um, there'll be a key role for those assays uh, once the vaccine does get rolled out. Yes. Yeah. So we're very keen to see what's going to happen today. We're recording this on December 2nd yeah. and Today, we just got the announcement that the MHRA in, in the UK have approved the Pfizer vaccine. So I think they're going to start start vaccinating people next yeah. week or so. Oh, that's wonderful. I did not hear that. It's, it's yeah. so early in the States. But we, sorry, to go back to the, the Siemens uh, antibody test that we're, we're talking about, would you classify it as qualitative or semi-quantitative or quantitative, just for the consumers listening? Um, the Siemens assay measures the antibodies directed against the receptor binding domain and only those antibodies against the receptor binding domain. We also have data now that demonstrate that the numeric value of our assay or the quantitative value of our assay correlates extremely well with those patient samples ability to neutralize the virus. 
So our assay correlates well with the neutralizing capability of patient sera to the numeric value. So uh, yes, it's a semi-quantitative test. It does give you a qualitative result as well. The test will tell you whether or not the individual is reactive or non-reactive, but will also produce uh, a, a quantitative number for that individual um, as well. It's good to know. Good. And that's a total, total antibody, so both IgM and IgG. Yes, yeah, so we have two tests, right? We have a total antibody test that detects both IgM, which is the first antibody that's, that is developed, followed very quickly by IgG. Uh, IgM antibodies typically are not neutralizing to the virus, where IgG antibodies are neutralizing to the virus because they fix complement. Um, now, we also have a IgG-only test, and the IgG test will be very important when the vaccines roll out. So we have a brand new test that um, was launched in Europe uh, very recently. It's the S-CoV-G test on the Atelica solution and the Advia Centaur that um, is a quantitative test that detects neutralizing antibodies against the virus. So with this test, if someone bought that test, they would get the level of antibodies as well and they could potentially follow that over time because I guess that's one of the other things we don't know is even if you do develop antibodies for how how long do you have them yep you're absolutely right yes you can follow the seroconversion process you can see the rise of antibody how long those antibodies are present in that individual and if those antibodies decline over time right and if you do get vaccinated if you took an antibody test, you would actually know whether you have developed enough antibodies based on those vaccine doses or not. Yes, absolutely. So if we're going to summarize this for someone who's looking to take an antibody test, what would you say to a member of the general public looking at buying a test? What should they be thinking of and what should they look out for? I'll just take myself, for example. If I were to have a test done on myself, I would want to make sure that I selected the test that detected the right antibodies. Um, so I would want to use a receptor binding domain based assay. I would want to make sure that I both that I get both a qualitative and a quantitative result. Um, the qualitative result tells me that I have the antibodies and the quantitative result tells me how much of those antibodies I have or the relative potency of my individual immune response to the virus. Those are the key things, and I would want a fast result. You know, once I once I give my blood, I'd I'd want to know within a day whether or not um, I have antibodies against the virus. Because if I do have antibodies against the virus, chances are that I will not become reinfected. And if I become reinfected, it will not progress to serious disease. So that just gives me a peace of mind that yes, you know. I did have either the vaccine and now I'm serocompetent or I did have the virus and I didn't even know it because there's a lot of asymptomatic disease out there. Do I have the right antibodies that are going to protect me from future infection? Um, now there have been reports. Um, so in the literature, um, there have been 25 people that have been reported who have contracted the virus a second time. These individuals did not progress to serious disease, they had mild symptoms or they were asymptomatic, but they did get the disease again. And the reason why they were you know, low symptoms and did not progress to further disease was they already had the antibodies produced. The body didn't have to wait those three weeks it takes 
for the body to amount an immune response against the virus. They already had these soldiers, so to speak, and then they, they fought the virus and resolved the virus. Um, so yes, you can get reinfected, but now your body is prepared to fight the virus. So again, for me, I would want to know, you know, do I have the right antibody? Do I have enough of that right antibody? And then, you know, I can be you know, assured that I, I probably won't get serious disease if I do contract the virus again. And you would recommend a lab-based assay versus these um, sort of home testing devices, the lateral flow tests still? Yeah, I would because, you know, I've, I've just not seen the level of quality in some of the lateral flow devices. Yes, it's convenient. It's a finger stick. Yes, it's fast. It's 10 minutes. But um, you may get a, a positive result and you're not positive. And so you, you'll have a false sense of security that you're protected when you're really not. And that's really the danger here, right? The danger is, you know, here I am. I just got my test. I'm positive. Great. I, I have antibodies. Um, I should be protected from further disease. But that test was inaccurate. And so now I have a false sense of security and, and, and I could go out there and I could get sick, right? And I, uh, because the test was, was, was incorrect. As a last question, maybe this is a controversial question, but do you think with, with the higher quality tests, like, like the Siemens Health and Ears test, as it's an enormous job to get the vaccine out to huge populations, that in the interim, it could be that a positive antibody test infers greater freedom of movement or similar right so early on in this pandemic i think around april and may there was a lot of talk about these so-called immunity passports right mm -hmm. essentially allowing you know somebody that that has had the virus is immune to the virus um, whether or not they can go back to work or go back to school it is controversial right now so let me just say one thing about that. Um, just because I have antibodies against the virus, that protects me. If I do get the virus again, I could still be infectious to other people. Yeah. So this whole idea of people who are immune to the virus don't have to wear masks and don't have to social distance, I believe that is inaccurate. You know, just because you're positive for antibody doesn't mean that you can go back to the way of life it was back you know, pre-pandemic, because you could still shed virus, you could still infect other individuals. We just don't know yet. We don't have that data. So even if you're positive for antibody, you're still going to need to social distance yourself. You're still going to need to wear a mask to protect others from you if you do contract the virus and become infectious. Now, it is controversial about schools and about, you know, going back to work if if I'm immune. Um, personally, I would say yes, because, you know, if I have the right antibodies and the right potency of those antibodies, you know, I can go about my, my daily activities. However, I still have to protect other people from me potentially. So I would still have to wear a mask and social distance. That would be my recommendation. Again, it is a controversial question. I am not a professional healthcare, you know, uh, I don't set policy. I don't, you know, but this, these are just scientific questions you're asking me and that's, and that's how I would respond. I think that's a very, very good comment. Basically having the antibodies doesn't completely protect you from being infected, but it means that if you do get infected, you can deal with that a lot quicker than, than you otherwise would have. 
Right. We just don't know yet. Right. We don't know what we don't even know the viral load necessary to shed virus. You know, we don't know the viral load necessary to infect an individual. You know, so if I get a very low viral load, I may not become sick. If I get a very high viral load, I may become very sick. We just don't know what low and high is yet. Right. How long do you, how far out do you think we are from knowing that? That's a good question. I mean, those are, those are very difficult. Those are human studies that have to be done. Those are very difficult studies to determine the inoculum it takes to infect an individual. Um, I, I don't think we'll ever know that, to tell you the truth. No. I, I don't know if, I, well, I don't know if we need to know it, right? I mean, hopefully with the vaccines rolling out, 2021 is still going to be a, a tough year, but moving into 2022, I think we'll get some sense of normalcy back to our lives. Um, and, you know, it takes a long time to understand you know, how much virus it takes to get an individual sick. Everybody's different. Their immune systems, everybody's immune system slightly different. Um, it, you know, it's all based upon the makeup of your DNA. Uh, so other people, you know, some people will react strongly, some people not so much. So, I mean, these are, these are all good questions, but I, I, I don't think we'll know the answers to these questions. We're still at the point where we've got more questions than answers, but... Uh, <laughs> we may always be at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jim. It's been absolutely yeah. fascinating uh, speaking to you. We've learned a lot, and I'm sure those listening have as well. So thanks a lot for, really for taking the time it. and speaking with us. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for your time. By now, I hope you feel like you've got an understanding of what information you can and can't get from an antibody test. And if you feel like you want to test your own antibodies, you know how to choose the right test for you based on the questions you want answered. If you like this podcast, make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you have any questions, comments or feedback on the topics we've discussed, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly by email, podcast at meliohealth.com or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using hashtag WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app or leave a rating review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer. <laughs>